Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Greetings. Welcome to Hope Brooklyn. No one says greetings anymore, do we? Yeah. <laughs> we need to bring that back. You know what I think of when I, when I say greetings? Who had the Space Jam album growing up? Anyone? Yes. Track number five, greetings, earthlings, we are now taking over your... Yeah, I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> hit them high, hit them... Okay, I'll go. Sorry. There we go. <laughs> that was the album. That was like 90s... That was 90s rap for me. And I know any of y'all who love 90s rap, you're like, if that's 90s rap for you, we have some work to do. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, well, welcome. Welcome to Hope Brooklyn. Faces that I see and that I know, so good to see you again. If you're new here, thanks so much for joining us. Like Joseph said, we're a new community of faith, and we believe no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Um, Nathan and I, we were actually in, uh, in California earlier this week for like this informal conference. Any Californians in the house? Why did you ever leave, is my question. We were in Sacramento, which I hear is not the best city, and it was still like 73 degrees and warm, and it's such a tease to come into those environments and then come back. Like, I'm pretty sure we were talking God, we, we misinterpreted the call. God wanted us to plant Hope Brooklyn in Sacramento. And you're like, well, wouldn't that be Hope Sacramento? See, no, no, it's still Hope Brooklyn. It's just in Sacramento. Um, <laughs> but it was a blast and I'm sort of happy to be back with you today. I'm not sure, we'll figure that out. Um, but welcome, welcome to Hope Brooklyn. Um, we're so happy to be here. We are in the middle of a series. Well, we're not in the middle, we're at the start of a series. We just kicked off last week a new series called A Subversive Church. And the idea behind the series is we're working through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul is shaping a new community of Jesus followers, very new Jesus followers, called out of an environment, a city, the city of Corinth, that is highly ambitious, highly competitive, obsessed with upward mobility, obsessed with rhetoric, and as we talked about last week, not classical rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion but still communicating truth, this new sort of evolution of rhetoric, which is all about persuading the crowd in order to win a following, to win admiration. So Corinth is obsessed with um, good speakers, regardless of whether they're speaking truth or not. And it's also obsessed with knowing the right people. So Paul is talking to this new group of about 30 to 50 Jesus followers who are directly out of this and living in this environment in Corinth and he's trying to sort of shape them of saying, hey, this guy Jesus who you follow, he's a little different. He might be at odds with some values of the city. And in the process, he's having to subvert their understanding of everything they thought and everything they value. We talked about last week sort of the historical context of, of Corinth and as Joseph read, we're sort of jumping straight in. Paul, he gives his general opening of a letter and then he jumps straight in to the thesis statement. And I would argue this is really his thesis statement. And before we get to that, we just join me in prayer uh, before we start. Uh, Lord Jesus, you, um, you're confusing. Your, your people, your kingdom doesn't make sense in many ways. And as we're gonna to hear today, there's good reasons why it doesn't. Lord, I thank you for every person in this room. 
whether they know why they're here or they're, they're not sure, they just came with a friend or um, something was just compelling them to be like, hey, let's just show up at Hope Brooklyn today for community or, or whatever. I just thank you. I thank you that they're here, Lord, and I ask that for this next bit of time that you would, um, that you would quiet any distractions, the voices that um, wage for our attention all the time. Would you just quiet them and give us a soft, open heart to hear you, whether we believe in you or not, to just hear, you know, what your story is all about. We thank you that you're so good. We thank you that your story is of incredible depths of love, regardless of whether we deserve it or not, and we don't. So I thank you for this community. I ask that you bless them. It's in your name. Amen. All right. So Paul jumps in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He jumps straight into the thesis of his argument, of his letter. And this is how it reads as a reminder. And this is kind of my, my translation, um, but I think it's okay. So he says, I implore you. I implore you, brothers and sisters, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement that there should be no schisms among you or divisions. There should be no schisms among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. This, I would argue, is the thesis statement. Everything Paul's gonna talk about from here on out can be traced back to this issue, that there are divisions in the Corinthian church. There are issues that are dividing them. There are schisms. That's a fun word. Can you say schisms? Yes. Did anyone say schisms? Yeah, they're the English ones. I get it. Um, schisms. And it comes from the Greek word, nicely enough, schismata. Schismata. Which means, uh, in a classical literal sense, a tear in a fishing net. That's where it developed. It's a schismata is a tear in a fishing net. As it evolved, it came to me as we know it. A schism is a break in something. It's a division. There was a cohesive whole and it split. For the church, there's, there's actually, we have a chapter in our history called the Great Schism of 1054. Any of you church history nerds, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and in the year 1054, that is when um, the, the Greek Orthodox Church of the East and the Roman Catholic Church of the West, they were still one up until this point, though they were operating as two. And then in 1054, they, they split irrevocably. So then we have two churches that have existed since 1054. We've had the Greek Orthodox Church in the East, and then all of us, we are inheritors of the Roman Catholic Church of the West. And then we'll talk about it a little bit later, there's even more schisms with the Protestant Reformation. But Paul is saying, look, you're one church, you're one community with one Lord and one purpose, but there, there are tears in you, there are rips in you. And so we ask the question, well, of what nature, what kind of tears are in this church? And really it can be boiled down to one word, power. There are power struggles going on in the Corinthian church. And what, what does Paul mean? Well, he writes it. He goes, some of you are saying, I heard from Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe is, a tattletale apparently, but she, he heard from Chloe's people, all right? That some of you are saying, I am of Paul. Some of you are saying, I am of Apollos. 
I am of Cephas, who is Peter, if you don't know. That's uh, the disciple Peter. Some of you are saying, I am of Christ. So there are people in the Corinthian church who are choosing the apostle, the pastor that they like best. Now, if you were here last week, you remember we talked about the Roman system of patronage, which was pervasive in the city of Corinth. Essentially what that meant is, is think like, like gangs. Everyone was involved in their own gang and they had you know, the gang leader at the top. And if you pick the right gang and they, like, their industry flourished, there was opportunity for upward advancement, right? But there were, no independent, there were no free agents. Everyone had a benefactor, a patron at the top. And also, the Corinthian people are obsessed with rhetoric, with really good speakers. So that those two things combined have seeped into this community so that the Corinthian church thinks that they need to choose the best pastor, the best apostle, the best speaker. And that's really not a contest. Who's the best speaker of this group? We know it's Apollos. We hear in Acts 18 that Apollos was a learned Jew from Alexandria who taught accurately the things concerning Jesus with great power. The issue is that for the church in Corinth, their operative principle is just like the city of Corinth. They are part of a group of various apostles and they choose the one that they think is gonna give them the most social power, the most social capital. So these schisms are of a power nature, but they're also with a little bit of spirituality thrown in. So we heard that really humorous line where he goes, I give thanks I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that some may not say you were baptized in my name. And I also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I can't remember, okay? Which is really funny. Um, paper was scarce, so there were no do-overs, all right? So it was power with a little spirituality. There was an assumption in the Corinthian church that whoever baptized you, whoever baptized you, you were on their team now, right? Or maybe you could switch teams. But there was something going on where the Corinthian church was divided over who the most powerful apostle was. And it's, it's further interesting because one of the groups is even saying, I am of Christ, right? They're saying, I'm not of Paul or Apollos. I am of Christ. I am of Jesus. Yet Paul does not say they're right. He doesn't say all of the rest of you be like them. No, he rejects the entire premise. And he says, you're missing it entirely. Has Christ been divided and parceled out for you? Is what he asks rhetorically. And then he plays the ace, the trump card the cross. He says, was Paul crucified for you? This is a city obsessed with upward advancement, upward mobility, with power. And the way to get that power is to choose the right team and the right communicator. And Paul says, let me remind you where you all were born, which was at the cross of Christ. Now, I don't want to steal next week because he goes more into that next week, but just briefly, death by crucifixion was the worst kind of execution possible. Like there were levels of execution. There were more noble deaths and the worst kind of death, the most heinous uh, death re reserved for the most despicable people was to be crucified. So for Paul to say, remember, that you're, who you hitched yourself to is one who
who died on a cross. To catch the shock of like what a first century listener would feel when he says that, it would be like if I was talking to you today and you've never heard of the gospel and I tell you about Jesus and I say, I worship one who was convicted as a pedophile. Yeah, you feel that? You feel that jump in your stomach of like, oh, that's, that's weird, that's disgusting. Like what? That's it. That's the shock that everyone heard for Paul to say, remember that your faith was birthed out of a God who became flesh and who was crucified. It's to say, we worship one who's been convicted and identified as a pedophile. That's the shot. That's the sense of scandal. So he's saying, how can there be power struggles among you when we worship one who is so revolting to wider society? How does that even make sense? You're, you're vying for greater power? Do you remember where we were birthed out of? Do you remember our story? And he says, I was sent not to baptize, but to tell you the message of Jesus and not with beautiful words so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power. So that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power. Did anyone in music class back in the day have rain sticks? Did you play with rain sticks? Remember those? Yeah. So it's like you, you turn them one way, and then I'm assuming there are beans inside of it. I don't know. They go to one end, and then you turn it the other way, and then it rains to the other end. It was a lot of fun. That's kind of what's going on here. It's the way I, I envision it a little bit. On one end, you have the cross. You have the scandal of this. And on the other end, you have the values of the world what the world holds to be important, what Corinth holds to be important, which is upward mobility, which is intelligence, which is um, hitching yourself to the right patron. And Corinth is in this endless battle of turning it back and forth. So when they turn and they're, they're sort of dividing themselves, their schisms as they choose the right pastor or whatever, the world's values become more powerful in their eyes. And Paul is trying to turn it back. And he's saying, look, the cross is a scandal, but there's power there. And this is the true power of God. Corinth is turning it through their rhetoric and through thinking that following Jesus is going to benefit them such that when they do that, the cross is emptied of its bitter, scandalous power. Now, I don't even need to give you examples. Like I, I talk about this and you can clearly see it. I'm sure examples are coming right to mind of how we are still guilty of this. We here today, we are the product of a schism called the Protestant Reformation. And obviously like in things like this, it's, it's, never, it's never completely clean. It's never either or. Like the Protestant Reformation did a lot of great things, but also it resulted in a lot of different denominations popping up over the last 500 years. And what's so interesting, when I was a, when I was a student in seminary and I was studying the Protestant Reformation, so I was reading um, articles and essays by sort of the leaders of it, people like Zwingli and Luther and Calvin. What's so fascinating is how much they agree upon. They agree upon so much. They're, they're, the issues that they are, you know, contest are very small, like one or two verses even. So they debate about the Lord's Supper a lot. And some say, you know, that Jesus is, is literally present. Some say it's a symbol. And, and what's, what's interesting about that is uh, when I was in, um, when I took Greek with my buddy, uh, we were reading, you know, the Greek language. And the Greek language is not clear in a lot of ways. 
So just case in point, you, you see the preposition in Greek, en, E-N, right? That word, en, in the Greek, can be accurately translated with so many different options. You can translate it by, you can translate it with, you can translate it toward, you can translate it in, I-N, or into, I-N-T-O. You can translate it so many different ways. Which, what that means is that if you're actually taking the Greek language seriously, the one thing you cannot do is split over various interpretations <laughs> because there's expansiveness in it. And yet that's exactly what they did. Through the forces of their nature, through their power, they were great speakers, they were great communicators. Through that and through their, their determination that their interpretation was right, denominations started splitting like crazy. Also, I mean, for anyone who's grown up in the church, you know we have sort of like a celebrity crisis going on in the church. America, we love celebrities. We do. It's just like Corinth. We privilege a certain group of people and we're just obsessed with them. But that's also seeped into the church such that those with the biggest platforms, those with the most effective style of preaching or the worship, those with the coolest clothes develop the biggest following. I just want to let you know, guys, I'm going to lose the cool clothes battle every time, every time. I don't know, uh, if you've grown up in the church, you've seen the evolution of the pastor's wardrobe. It's a thing where like back in the 90s and the early aughts, it was like the, the button-up shirts with the sequined cross on the back. You know what I'm talking about? And now it's the deep V. Guys, I, you will never catch me in a deep V, all right? That's a... Uh, and like, if you can rock it, rock it. I cannot, okay? So it's not gonna happen. Um, but sort of this, this obsession with, with celebrity has seeped into the values of the church, such that when people are asked sometimes, you know, what church do you go to? They name the pastor. They're like, I go to his or her church. Luckily, I don't think I've heard it yet. I hope I never do. And if you do say it, you're not being judged, but don't say it again. If you're asked what church you go to, don't ever say, I go to Russell's church or whatever. No, <laughs> you go to Hope Brooklyn. You go to Hope Brooklyn. This, we gather around the scandalous story of the cross. And so when we look, and, and this is, happens to us and it happens to our friends who don't identify as Christians. When you look at the landscape of sort of the celebrity crisis in the church, um, when you look at the landscape of, of sort of the history, it feels empty, doesn't it? You're like, there's gotta, be, there's gotta be more than this. This can't be it. And you're right, because what's happened? The rain sticks move to more of what the world values. And we've forgotten that we worship a God who was convicted as a pedophile. We've emptied the scandal of the cross of its power. Uh, I just finished a book recently about a guy um, who is uh, agnostic, um, wealthy, intelligent. Uh, he's a writer and really good at his job. Um, and, he, and he was writing sort of a memoir of sorts. Um, he, uh, he was always agnostic, had wanted nothing to do with it, very, very just secular-minded. Um, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, I just mean in a very like, honest, like secular, like of the world. Um, but he had an encounter. He had an encounter with the gospel. Um, 
And then he spent a couple of years trying to figure out what that was. What happened? He ended up sort of, you know, leaving it behind and living the next 20 years as he was before. And then 20 years later, he's given an assignment for a project, which forces him to delve back into the gospel, into the, the story of Jesus, and into that period of his own life. Oh, wrong page, got it. <laughs> and so what he does toward the, end of, uh, toward the end of his book of this memoir is he travels to a community called L'Arche. You may have heard of it. L'Arche was started by a man named Jean Vanier. Um, and it's basically intentional communities all across the world where able-bodied people live side by side with the disabled, mentally disabled, physically disabled, um, and, and not in a, in a process of, of support, though there is that, but as friends. They live in community as equals and as friends. And Jean Vanier is a Christian. It's all based on the gospel. And he's asked, why, what, what was the impetus behind this community of La Arche? Why, why do this? This is what he writes. He says, this is the secret of the gospel and of the ark, L'Arche. At the start, you want to be good when you move to these communities. You want to be good. You want to do good to the poor. And little by little, it can take years, you discover that they're the ones who do us good. Because by remaining close to their poverty, their weakness, their fear, we lay bare our poverty, our weakness, our fear, which are the same. What's he saying? He's saying, from all of our vantages, a man who dies on a cross is powerless, right? Utterly powerless, a loser by the world's eyes. <clears throat> but the secret of the gospel is that that's where true power comes from. True power is found in absolute abject powerlessness. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, he's not recommending that that we go out and be poor. He's saying that when you're around the poor, you'll experience the kingdom in a way you haven't before. This is why uh, my friends would go on mission trips. I never went on one, I don't know why. And maybe this was you too. And you come back from a mission trip. And what do you always say? I received more than I gave. And I, it, the answer is duh. Because the kingdom is the, are the poor. Because when we get around there, we realize that I'm not bringing anything to them. The kingdom's more here. They're teaching me about my poverty, about my fear. Jesus says, blessed are the mourners. In mourning, that's the secret. In the powerlessness of mourning, you see the power of the cross. You see the kingdom. Blessed are the humble. Hunger, those hungering for the goodness of the world, the peacemakers, the merciful. This is the kingdom. The world values strength and power and beauty and riches and intelligence. And all of these things are encumbrances for us seeing the true power of a God who became flesh, who was crucified as the worst of the worst. That is the power of the kingdom, says Paul. And he says when, you're, when these schisms are happening, when, when you're having power trips, internal power trips, social power trips, communal power trips, those are all various ways that your hands are holding tight to something that you refuse to let go of that you refuse to surrender. And so this guy, this, this writer, he goes to a large community, to a retreat uh, for a weekend. 
and he's reflecting on it. This comes at the end of his book. And we've, you know, if you've read it, you're, you've been with him the entire time. You're wondering, what's he thinking? What's he feeling? This is the end of his book. And at the end, this is what he writes. He goes, the retreat comes to an end after breakfast the next day, Sunday. Now, before going their separate ways, everyone sings a, a Jesus is my friend type of hymn. The nice woman who takes care of Elodie, and Elodie is a child with Down syndrome. The nice woman who takes care of Elodie, the girl with Down syndrome, accompanies the singing on her guitar. As it's a joyous hymn, everyone starts clapping their hands and tapping their feet and wiggling as if they were at a disco. With the best will in the world, I can't sincerely join in on a moment of such intense religious kitsch. I hum vaguely, my mouth closed, swaying back and forth and waiting for it to end. And suddenly, Elodie surges up beside me, dancing a sort of lively farandole. She plants herself in front of me, smiles, throws her arms in the air. She laughs, and above all, she looks at me, encouraging me with her eyes. And there's such joy in her look, such candid joy, so confident, so unburdened, that I start dancing like the others, singing that Jesus is my friend. And tears come to my eyes as I sing and dance and watch LOD, who's now found another partner. And I'm forced to admit that that day, for an instant, I got a glimpse of what the kingdom is like. LOD makes no sense to the world, right? A child, an adult, a human with Down syndrome, what do they contribute? They're a schism. They're an encumbrance. They're a drain on the power of a parent's life. And yet, and yet what this guy is saying and what is the truth of the power of the cross of Jesus is that in the powerlessness of LOD, you see the kingdom. For a split second, all the encumbrances of his life vanish that sort of cloud his vision. And in Elodie's joy, in Elodie's powerlessness, in her freedom to dance and to encourage him to dance along with her, he sees the kingdom. Schisms, tears, rips, they're of this world. They demonstrate where our power in various ways, where our ableness where we're holding on to it so tightly, not releasing it, that we're not able to see the true power of the cross of Christ. It's clouding our vision, making us unable to see it. And so he writes at the end, he goes, this is the very last thing he writes. He goes, I wrote this book that I'm now bringing to a close in good faith, but what it attempts to deal with is so much larger than I am that this good faith I know is paltry in comparison. I wrote it encumbered, with everything that makes me what I am, intelligent, rich, a man at the top, so many obstacles to entering the kingdom, so many obstacles to seeing the power of the crucified God. Nevertheless, I tried. And what I wonder as I leave it is if it betrays the young man I was and the Lord he believed in, or if in its way it remains faithful to them. I don't know. And for anyone who's been following with him this entire time, you're wondering, is he a Christian? Is he not? Does he believe? Does he not? And then he ends with this, I don't know, which you interpret as, he just doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And so Paul writes, Paul writes, I didn't want to empty the cross of its power. So back to his thesis, he says, I implore you, brothers and sisters, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you be in agreement that there should be no schisms among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Now here's why this is awesome. (laughs) Here's why this is awesome. I said the word schisms in the Greek is schismata, right? A tear, a rip, specifically in a fishing net. However, the Greek word that Paul uses for united, and he could have used many things, is katartismenoi. Katartismenoi. Say katartismenoi. <laughs> you nailed it. Nailed it. Katartismenoi, which means to mend or restore. And it's used in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark talking about how the disciples, before they were disciples, were mending their fishing nets. Now, here's why that's interesting. Here's why that's like so cool. Paul is saying that the opposite of divisions and schisms is not unity, as in like some idealized utopian sense of of unity. No, the opposite of division is reconciliation. He's saying division and unity are not juxtaposed. Tears are going to happen. Schisms are going to happen. Why? Because you and I live in a world where we have power, where we have power over ourselves, where, where we have intelligence, where we're constantly facing what the world values, the rain stick. And Paul's saying that's going to happen. You're going to bring that in to the church. Schisms are going to happen. People will forget. There will be conflict. My appeal to you is not that there is no conflict. My appeal to you is that you leave no conflict unresolved. The opposite of division is not unity. The opposite of division is reconciliation. I beg you, says Paul, to mend the nets. Mend the nets. I'm not advocating for a conflict-free church. I'm not advocating for a conflict-free life. It's gonna happen. You're gonna be encumbered by all those things. Don't leave them unresolved. Mend it. Mend it. Now, why is this radical? And why is this the appropriate response of Paul to the scandalous cross of Jesus? Once again, at the core of Jesus' story is truthfulness. Truthfulness. I heard someone say a while back, and I think it's absolutely right. Christians, simultaneously, should be the most realistic about the world and the world's brokenness. And when I say that, my brokenness. We should be the most realistic, not hiding it. And simultaneously, we should be the most joyous about the world. Because the core of our story is a God who comes and is not embarrassed about embarrassing things, right? A God who's not embarrassed to be identified as a pedophile and says, I will take upon myself every level, every layer of brokenness, and I'm not ashamed of it. Therefore, you don't have to be ashamed of how you're broken, how your social relationships are broken, how the world is broken. You don't have to be ashamed of it. You can speak honestly about it because I've overcome it. Therefore, mend the nets. As Christians, we're not repulsed when we hear of of Christians messing up. We hear of Christians getting divorced and talking honestly about how, you know, they both broke the marriage and 
This is not what they want, but they just, they're in pain. That doesn't repulse us. We mourn with them. We surround them, but that doesn't repulse us. What repulses us, what shocks us, is when we hear about a leader of the church having in a secret affair for years, not being truthful. That's what says that's not right. Because the core of the story, the power of the story, is a powerless God being truthful. It's, it's dishonesty which gets at us. So we live in a world that says boast in your strengths, don't we? You walk out these doors, you walk into your jobs, and you better not show your weaknesses. Lie about how good you are to get that promotion. As soon as people start seeing your weaknesses, as if you're like showing them, that's blood in the water, isn't it? And you will be consumed. But it's the inverse in the kingdom. In the kingdom, we boast in our weaknesses. In the kingdom, you know, I remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this line in one of his um, one of his essays talking about the church in Germany. And sarcastically, he goes, God forbid a sinner be found in the church, right? Does anyone ever feel like that? God forbid one of you have an addiction. God forbid one of you be so desperately lonely. Why the heck are we here? We're here because I am lonely. We're here because I do have addictions. We're here because I can't seem to let go of my power over myself, over my marriage, over my job. We're here because I'm scared. That's why we're here. And what we see in the cross of Jesus and the power there is a God who becomes absolutely powerless. Says, you can let go. You're gonna be okay. What we see in the cross of Jesus is LOD dancing, saying, just dance with me. Don't worry about what people think. Our creator is good. Come dance. Schisms don't empty the cross of its power. Unresolved schisms do. You're gonna have tears in your life. You're gonna have tears in your relationship. That's not the issue. Resolve them. Mend the nets. Wherever there are unresolved divisions, that means we're holding on to our pride somewhere. We're holding on to something that we refuse to lay down. We refuse to let go of. That means we're not being honest about ourselves. We're not being honest about the gospel. Don't be afraid to be truthful about your fears, your addictions. Then you'll understand the crucified God. This intelligent, brilliant, wealthy man trying to understand Christianity sees it for an instant and a child with Down syndrome dancing. And that's the point. That's the kingdom. On one end is everything the world values, everything that makes him who he is, everything that makes us who we are. Intelligent, um, holding power, um, pursuing upward mobility. That's what we care about. But on the other end is the scandal of a God who became human and who died on a cross. And that, that is the kingdom. That is the truthfulness of the gospel. From Elodie's eyes, when she looked at him, remember he said that, it's when she looked at me with such candid joy that something, something happened, I saw it. When she looked at him, I'm sure what shone was kind of the appeal of Paul. 
Don't let the power trips keep tearing you open. Lay it down. Lay it all down. Be reconciled with God. Be reconciled with me, with the world. For where there is power that keeps cutting you, you cannot see the power of the cross. You cannot see the power of people like Elodie. You cannot see the scandal. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about in one of, uh, one of his books about, you know, talking with, with friends who are not followers of Jesus. And usually what they'll say is, you know, I, I like Jesus um, as a teacher. Like, I like him. He's a good moral teacher, but I can't accept all the other stuff about him, right? I can't accept him as a, as a healer or as someone who was raised from the dead. And C.S. Lewis would say, and I think rightly, well, then you're not taking him seriously. You're not reading him as he has to be read. And so he goes, if, if you want to truly make up your mind about Jesus, there are only three alternatives. If you really take the stories about him seriously from those who lived around him, those who remembered what he did, and those who recorded it, if you really want to take him seriously, you have three options. You can call him a liar, and that's fair. You can say the stuff that Jesus says and the way he says it like, he's just lying. That's a fair conclusion. You can say he's a lunatic. That's also fair. You can say, like, he calls himself God's son. He forgives people their sins when they didn't wrong him. You can say, like, you're crazy. He says, I'm, I'm the way and the life. You're a lunatic. Fair. Or you can call him the Lord, who he says he is. And those are your three options. He's a liar. He's a lunatic and he's the Lord. But what's so fascinating is when you come to the story of Jesus, as everyone, as many people have throughout the last 2,000 years, he doesn't strike you as a liar. And he doesn't strike me as a lunatic. So I have no idea how he's Lord, or necessarily I have no idea what that even means to say you're the Lord of the world, you're my Lord. And what that looks like, that the genesis of that lordship comes from the powerlessness of him being crucified as a despicable criminal. I don't know what that means. My values of the world are being inverted. But I say yes. Yes. Okay, I'll follow. And we'll just start this ride and see what it is. I want to invite the worship team back up. I invite everyone here to just close their eyes and pray with me. Lord Jesus, we ask that your presence be revealed to us right now. We ask your presence be revealed right now, Holy Spirit. I think the words of... Uh, of this writer are so true for so many of us. That I am encumbered by everything that makes me what I am. I'm intelligent, I'm rich, I'm ambitious, I'm able-bodied. So many encumbrances to understanding and seeing the God who hangs on a cross. The God convicted and identifying as the worst of the worst. 
so many encumbrances to seeing the child with Down syndrome being the location of the kingdom. That is your good news. That is where we surrender everything that we are and everything that we have. And we say, whoever you are, Jesus, there's never been anyone like you. And I want to learn more. I want to follow. If there's anyone in this room who's not a follower of Jesus and you were compelled today by what was said, and I know you're thinking, man, this is feeling a little bit of pressure. Don't, don't feel the pressure. Don't feel the awkwardness. But if there's something internally going on, if there's something internal in you, like a pressure saying, this is true, I saw it, even for an instant, but I saw it. I saw the cross and I saw the power in it. I wanna invite you to take a tangible step of faith and you're like, whoa, this is weird. But there's something powerful in being embodied. And so if you wanna take a tangible step of faith saying, I want to learn more about this Jesus, will you just raise your hand? Just put your hand in the air, just between you and me. There's pressure saying that there's something to this story, there's something to this God. I wanna invite you to take a step. And if you're here today and you've never been baptized, For the church, in the waters of baptism are where we let go of all control and all power. And we're having a baptism in a month. And if there's something in your heart, there's a pressure that says, be baptized. Do it. I know it doesn't make sense, but just do it. I want to invite you also to raise your hand. To take a step of commitment and say, I want to follow Jesus to the waters. And for the rest of us here, those who like this guy constantly day in and day out are encumbered. Our vision is clouded from seeing the true power of the gospel, which comes in powerlessness. If you've been listening today and your heart is just like, man, I just need to repent. I need new grace, fresh grace. I need you, Jesus, to help me see yet again. You too, I want to invite to raise your hand. Take an embodied step of faith. Receive that grace. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room. I thank you for the story you're writing in their lives. I thank you that your gospel is so difficult to see, that it's found in weakness, that your good news is found in ugliness, that it's found in poverty, that it's found in our fear. Right there is where we see the truth of your story. 
I ask you reveal that to everyone in this room as they go forth. Reveal to them who you are. Reveal to them how deeply you love them. Reveal to them that what you're inviting in them into is a story of life and full abundance, life they've never experienced. You have not come to condemn, you have not come to judge. You've come to set free. You've come to give joy. You've come, just like LOD, to say, come dance with me. To invite us into the dance of the Creator. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for this community. There will be divisions between us. Don't let us leave them unresolved. Let us be truthful about them. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.